0: Hello everyone, and thanks for listening to the Saga of World War II, A Cassis Belli Project. So, before we head into the second act of the show, there are a couple of things that I missed that I kind of want to go back and cover. For whatever reason, I just never found a good point in the narrative for these topics, and they don't warrant whole episodes of their own, so I'm just going to release a couple of appendices. These won't be full-length episodes, but instead are just however long I need them to be to cover the topic. The first of these is the French hero and leader, Charles de Gaulle. Though we discussed him back in the episodes dealing with the invasion of France, I never gave him a rundown of his own, or talked about his background really, so I'm going to correct that mistake now in Appendix A. The de Gaulle family was old and proud by the time Charles was born. They could trace their lineage back to the Hundred Years War, in which they first achieved minor nobility. They remained nobles of the sword and eventually raised themselves to the level of unlanded nobility by the time of the French Revolution during which time they engaged in the practice of law. In fact, one of Charles' ancestors, Jean-Baptiste de Gaulle, had been held in the Bastille. Following the revolution, the family veered into the study of history until Charles' father's generation. Henry, Charles' father, was a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War during which he was wounded. After the war, he left the army and became a teacher in Lille. There he settled, married, and had five children. His second son he named Charles. Henry de Gaulle was a proud, conservative, and traditionally Catholic man, but was loved and respected by his children and students. He strove to instill in them a love of country and of the French language. Henry was successful in passing not only his height to his son, but his virtues as well. In 1900, when Charles was just 10 years old, Henry accepted a position as a headmaster at the Jesuit school in Paris and moved the family there. As the political tides changed and secularism became dominant, the religious schools were closed and the Jesuits evicted from France. Charles had to finish his primary education in Belgium. As Charles grew older, he honed his intellect and poise. As he neared university age, he needed to decide what to do with himself. Being the staunch conservative that he was, the only routes he even considered were the church and the army. To enter into a military academy or the seminary, he needed to improve his grades though. So he entered into preparatory school for two years before ultimately deciding to enter into the army he was accepted into the military academy at saint cyr but before attending the french army required that all prospective officers spend one year as enlisted men charles spent that year with the 33rd infantry then spent two at the military academy before commissioning at the age of 22. after graduating he got himself appointed to the 33rd where he served under philip Pétain. When the First World War erupted, Charles was leading a platoon in the Belgian village of Dion, where he was struck by a machine gun fire and lay in hospital for seven months until early 1915. By 1916, he had been promoted to captain and led a company of infantry at Verdun, under now General Pétain. During the battle, he personally led his men in an attack, which left him wounded by bayonet and grenade, then captured by Germans. The French didn't know he had been captured, though, and assumed he had been killed in the fighting. He remained a POW for the remainder of the war, against his best efforts. He attempted escape several times, and was eventually moved to maximum security, where he spent months on end in solitary confinement. After the armistice, he returned to France, but not for long. While interred in Germany, he had met and befriended Mikhail Tukhachevsky, a Polish patriot who became a marshal in the Polish army after gaining independence. He felt obligated to assist his friend and fellow Catholic against the godless communist invasion of Poland. He volunteered as a captain in the Polish 4th Division and left in June of 1919. He fought in several key battles, including the critical battle of Warsaw, until the end of the war in 1921. For his exemplary service, he was awarded the highest Polish military award, the Ordo Virtuti Militari. Upon returning from Poland, he wed and went back to St. Cyr to lecture. He was a highly decorated and respected officer who commanded attention, but his ideas rubbed many the wrong way. First. He was by no means a Napoleon worshiper, primarily because he thought the Corsican had left France worse off than he had found it. Second, because he was highly critical of France's overall military doctrine. The General Staff had overlearned the lessons from the First World War, and now considered defense to be the tre- prevailing form of war. De Gaulle argued that tank and offensive maneuver were the way of the future, and made that case after enrolling at the War College in 1922. De Gaulle's arrogant demeanor did not help him win his argument. To say that he rubbed his lecturers the wrong way would be an understatement. De Gaulle was not only confident, but he was an experienced veteran. His professors at the War College saw to it that he did not receive the marks necessary to move on to the general staff. De Gaulle was not some no-name officer, though. He was to some degree a celebrity in the army, and was Patan's protege. Marshal Patin, now Inspector General of the Army, came to the War College himself to intervene but even this was not enough to save de Gaulle from himself. He graduated with the equivalent of a B. Only A students went on to the general staff. So he left for Germany to serve in the occupation, but returned in 1927 to deliver a series of lectures sponsored by Marshal Patan himself. The lectures were hardly popular though, and only continued to ruffle the feathers of those who opposed him. Patan did manage to break the deadlock and get de Gaulle promoted to major, which he no doubt deserved. After his promotion, Boutin would have to save de Gaulle again though, when he was accused of preventing his men from transferring out of his unit. Boutin put water on that fire, and de Gaulle went to serve in the Middle East for two years, then returned to France in 1931 to serve in the General Secretariat. There he served in some capacity until the start of the Second World War under dozens of different governments. During the 1930s, he very much lost faith in the French Republican system and saw its weaknesses. He had in, it had in many ways turned on itself. Politicians were consumed with political infighting and maneuvering, and hardly had time or energy left for actual governing. De Gaulle continued to serve faithfully, though, and did his best to prepare his nation for war. As discussed previously, he published his treatise on war toward a professional army, but it was read by few. After the capture of Paris, De Gaulle led the free French government in exile from London. Meanwhile, Boutin was installed as the head of the French government in Vichy. Which makes me realize, I haven't really discussed what happened to France after the German conquest. Sure, the German army vanquished the French. But what of the French people and institutions? After the fall of France and the signing of Armistice on June 22, 1940, the Third Republic came to an end and the legislature essentially set up Philippe Pétain as the head of state and government. The hero of the First World War, elder statesman, and father of the country was in despair. Not in the emotional sense, but in the sense that he had given up any hope that liberal Republican government could win out against fascism, and resigned himself to being a German puppet. The old Republican motto of liberty, equality, fraternity was replaced with the more authoritarian work, family, fatherland. The shift didn't totally come out of left field, though. The instability of the 1930s led many conservatives, of which Batan was one, to despise communists and Jews. All of the foreign Jews in Vichy France, more or less the southeastern half of the country the Atlantic facing portions were placed under German occupation were rounded up into concentration camps and public dissent was cracked down on. Vichy France descended into a police state. But to what degree was Vichy France complicit in German atrocities? At the time, and for decades after the war, there was a convenient fiction that Vichy was a neutral bystander, but the reality was much different. The Vichy government had the consent of the French people under it, and willingly participated in achieving German goals, to the extent that it could. Jews were rounded up, and their property seized, and Vichy soldiers resisted Allied invasion when it finally arrived. Pétain, one of the greatest Frenchmen who ever lived, tarnished his reputation, his legacy, and his honor by choosing to lead it. De Gaulle, on the other hand, had no tolerance for fascism or for the humiliation of his people. History would prove him right.